This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome to the Engine Room of Democracy. Today, I'm very privileged to welcome Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker, a remarkable person, a remarkable woman. I first met Elizabeth when she was general counsel for the National Security Agency. She is a, an iconic leader in the legal community, both in the traditional legal world, but also in national security law. She held senior positions in the government. She was general counsel for both the CIA and NSA. She was uh, president of the California Bar Association. She was the dean of the McGeorge School of Law. She's had remarkable experiences, and we're going to learn from her today in this conversation. The topic to explore today is how do courts sustain their legitimacy when they live in a world of conflict? You know, the courts are adjudicating every day just really hard issues where there are winners and there are losers. And in that process, they have to sustain legitimacy. I know this sounds simple, but it's actually a very profound and fundamental question. And we're so fortunate that Elizabeth will be with us today. So Elizabeth, just to begin, to help our listeners understand the significance of your comments, please, why don't you share with us a, a description of your professional journey? You know, you were a lawyer, you were an educator, you were an administrator of an important legal institution. Help us understand through your background, this legal judicial ecosystem. It's an opportunity to talk about myself, John. <laughs> Always welcome. <laughs> you know, one of the uh, strengths of the legal profession as a career or a calling is that you do have so many different opportunities. And for me, it began actually in the civil rights movement. John Lewis's death has really touched me deeply because in my early days, I was in the Deep South. I arrived uh, as a student actually in 1966, and I continued uh, working with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund cooperating office in Atlanta, and actually we represented SCLC, and I met John on an occasion or two. I can't claim close friendship, but saw him most recently about two, three years ago, and I have a treasured picture of him giving me a big hug. Oh, it's marvelous. Yeah, it was. That was quite an experience because I learned so much. I'm uh, sure I was there to represent people and to help them, but at the end of the day, I think I learned more. 
I learned a great deal. I also did some draft resistance work, which was kind of an unusual background for someone who later on became the general counsel of NSA, where one in five were JAG lawyers. And, and I should say parenthetically, my my dear father-in-law was a, a highly regarded Navy admiral, and you'd have thought he might have said something about my early work, but he was nothing but supportive. But <laughs> in that time, I think one of the things I learned, there was one judge in particular on the Fifth Circuit, which was legendary at the time for the remarkable work they did in supporting the civil rights movement. Uh, judge Tuttle, Elberty Tuttle, someone I highly regarded. I remember having lunch with him and just feeling like I was in uh, what shall I say, it, almost a magnetic field of this remarkable man. But the judges on the Fifth Circuit in those days were, were remarkable for the work that they did in making the rule of law actually effective in supporting the development of our civil rights structure. That said, there were also judges who were not so supportive. I think of Judge Scarlett. But then we have Frank Johnson, another district court judge in Alabama, who took some terribly courageous stands. And I must say that for me, having an opportunity to observe these judges, to get to know them, was really formative. My first husband died um, at a, a very young age, 29, and I took over his caseload, which at the time was about 100 civil rights cases. And that thrust me improbably enough into court probably every other day. Now, I should say that I was a very timid law student. I was uh, somebody who did not enjoy speaking up, but sometimes you just don't have much of a choice. And so when I had said uh, in a response to this tragic death of a dear husband at a very, very young age that I would take over his caseload, I found myself, um, as I say, you know, ha having no choice. I had to stand up and, as it were, deliver day in, day out, uh, handling these cases. And I learned a great deal. And some of what I learned was about myself and about the lack of understanding I had about the way things worked and, frankly, about the courage that a number of people who were engaged in these struggles, both black and white, represented. So it was a, it was a learning experience. But it also uh, was an experience where I felt that I was deeply prepared for understanding how uh, we're structured as a national government through the Constitution to protect individual rights and liberties and the role that judges have in making those decisions. And, and I might say that many of the judges before whom I appeared were not, you might say, liberal in their persuasion but they were cautious and thoughtful in the main about their judicial opinions. They might not always agree. It might not have been a law that they would have themselves penned or adopted or voted for, but they applied things fairly. And that, mm. that mm. impressed me equally well. And I would say too, the way that particularly in Atlanta, here I was a carpetbagger. And the way that the federal court responded to me and the judges in particular, their respect, even though they might not agree with some of the positions I was taking, it made an impact. The courtesy they showed me, the decency, just their willingness to listen and to be persuaded left an imprint. Yeah, it's fascinating. The judicial system is complicated. Most Americans are afraid of 
getting pulled into the legal system. I mean, they don't understand it, et cetera. You know, we have federal courts, we have state courts, we've got, I guess, you know, petty courts or small things. Can you just share with us the landscape of the legal ecosystem in America? Well, I think you're right when you say it is complex. And the sad fact is that as we have declined in our attention to civic education, a topic that I know you know that I have great passion for, we've not spent the kind of time we should in explaining the role of this, we'll call it, branch of government, because as we know, there are three branches And they are independent one of another as designed in the Constitution. And yet people don't understand the functioning of the court system. They really don't understand what it is to have an independent court system if we can believe what surveys tell us. And that's something of a tragedy because this complexity, which is of necessity something that results from a very complex Uh, social and political system that we have is something not well understood. I think many people don't realize the fact that while a judge may or may not have had a political background, there's a commitment to once you're on the bench to being independent and fair-minded. I think of the story here of Justice Powell. Uh, Justice Powell was a Republican. He served in a variety of different capacities. And yet when he came on the Supreme Court, he never voted again. And that wasn't because he didn't hold voting in high regard and know of its importance, but rather because he wanted to be sure that he was above a political choice that, of course, voting represents. I always felt that was kind of a touching story that I learned from, from Justice Powell. But yes, um, going to the details of this, we have not only courts that are federal courts, that are state courts, and sometimes local courts, but we also have different ways in which we select judges. And so while the federal system appoints judges, now I should say judges, not magistrates, for life, that's not true in the state system. I don't think there's any state court that appoints its judges for life. They may appoint them for a term of years. They may actually elect their judges or California's case, they may typically appoint, but then cause them to stand for re-election after a brief period of time. So just the way in which judges are selected can vary state to state, uh, federal to local. And then there are further things that I think tend to confuse people. Most people come into interaction with the court system on a personal level when most typically there's some matter of family law involving the courts. And I suspect that's the most common way for uh, individuals to interact with the judicial system if they're not brought in for service on a jury. That can be very, very difficult. And some might say that even having judges make decisions in a matrimonial conflict and so on might not be the ideal thing. But the point I'd like to make here is that juvenile courts are a very special component of the overall judicial system. And because of the sensitivity with which we want to handle anything involving a juvenile, there is some need for confidentiality. And that translates into, in many cases, not having a fully transparent record of what has gone on in a judicial setting. People may not understand why that's necessary, why that is the case. 
And most disturbingly in recent years, we've seen some, notably from outside the United States, seeking to stoke mischief and disagreement, making up what may have happened in those confidential settings that a judicial court inevitably has to take advantage of. That's a really an interesting question, and I want to return to it. Elizabeth, let me ask you, start at the top with the Supreme Court. You know, this, We always hear about the Supreme Court. It's always about kind of adjudicating issues that come up from the appellate level. But I have a sense that the Supreme Court plays a larger role in the overall dynamic of the judiciary. Could you describe that for us? Well, of course, we have on the Supreme Court nine justices, and they are an example of justices, as we call them, who are selected for life, but go through a a confirmation process that has increasingly had a political component to it. I think another thing that's interesting about the Supreme Court as we understand it today is that it's become much more commonplace to select members of the judiciary, those who've already served in lower courts for the Supreme Court. And one might fairly ask whether that's a positive trend or not. We think of some of our finest uh, members of that court in years past, and they did not have prior judicial service. Earl Warren might be one. I've mentioned Justice Powell. But they do tend to come, if you will, from the ranks of the secondary courts in the federal system. And of course, there we have now 11 circuit courts, which are really courts of appeal. And then under those circuit courts, organized circuit by circuit, we have federal district courts. And those district courts are the courts of first impression where trial matters actually begin and then can be appealed under certain circumstances to the next level up and ultimately to the Supreme Court. But I would would mislead our listeners if I didn't point out that in some cases, a case may come directly from a state court to the Supreme Court as well. Actually, I had the opportunity twice as a young lawyer to argue before the Supreme Court And both of my cases resulted from uh, decisions in the Georgia, as it turned out, Supreme Court. Could you explain that to us? Because I'm told that about only 10% of cases are at the federal level, that maybe 90% of cases are at the state level. But you've just indicated that there are state cases that go into the federal level. Could you explain that to us? Well, the cases from a state level that make it to the Supreme Court have to involve, in most instances, a constitutional question. And so it's a question where a state Supreme Court has resolved an issue in a way that implicates the federal constitution. These days, the Supreme Court hears cases in a very narrow class of cases. There's an appeal by right to the Supreme Court tends to be disputes between the states, but normally it's discretionary. And so we talk about a rule of certiorari. Well, that's where uh, the court decides that it would, on its own motion, like to hear a petition that has been presented to it. And it chooses these, these matters because they're seen as possibly of particular importance and interest, or there may be oftentimes a disagreement among the 11 circuits. And so it will take a case in order to resolve at a national level 
conflicting precedent which is developing. By and large, however, the court's jurisdiction, I think in the main, is discretionary. There are a smaller number of cases where it actually, by constitutional requirement, must hear a case. And so it does exercise a good bit of discretion as to which cases it wants to hear. Sometimes it will hear a case and simply not issue an opinion, simply resolve the matter by whatever the vote is and then send it back. It's called per curiam. So not without the full or not with the full argumentation and briefing that we normally associate with a case which goes to the Supreme Court. Elizabeth, can I just ask you, courts are dealing constantly with conflicting interests. Uh, There are always winners and losers. So how do the courts sustain a sense of legitimacy in the American public? How does that work? Well, I'm going to answer that question, John, not just for the Supreme Court, but for really all courts. Not every decision will produce a written opinion, but certainly if a written opinion is required or appropriate, I think one of the things that courts are paying additional attention to is making sure that the way in which they write is clear and understandable. In particular, in the sessions that I've been participating in with judges in a variety of of contexts, there's been a great deal of attention placed on trying to do a better job making clear the basis for the decision and to put it into a succinct, maybe lead paragraph. Again, courts are trained, judges are trained to articulate the rationale for their decision carefully and thoroughly to base their legal conclusions on actual facts that have been adduced and presented. And that can require a good bit of documentary presentation, and they tend to produce opinions that sometimes are longer than what the average person may wish to read. And so there has been a tension to say we need to articulate clearly and succinctly at an early point in our our decision the rationale and what it is we're actually determining. And I think that's very, very important because... I've mentioned already there's a lack of civic understanding because of the downturn in attention to civic education. Well, that affects all parts of our society. And in particular, courts are finding that oftentimes those who are writing about their opinions, that would be the reporters, themselves have perhaps not had sufficient education in the way in which courts function and operate and some of the legal principles involved to do as effective a job as you might like in articulating the basis for a decision. And so what courts are really trying to do in these opinions is to articulate, but also to educate the public. Can I just ask you, that is really an important question you just opened up. And that is, you know, how do judiciary feel accountability to the broader public? I mean, we want the judiciary to be independent from political pressure. You know, we've created structures for that. But at the same time, we want the judiciary to be a part of us, you know, our own culture. Tell me how you feel about that. Well, I think the courts would agree that accountability is a critically important component to establishing and maintaining the trust they need. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say, 
Hamilton comment, he was perhaps one of the first people to make the point that the courts are the weakest branch. If you look at who do they have to support Mm. decisions, Mm -hmm. they don't have a military, they don't have a police force. They're the poorest branch too. And so their strength comes through the credibility they're able to establish. And that comes through their independence, their impartiality, and the way in which they articulate their decisions, and the fact that they're seen as being fair and even-handed. Accountability is a key part. Courts have been supportive of creating judicial review commissions. We had one in California that served to review judges who may have been seen as uh, violating their oath of office. And so there was a structure, and I think this probably exists in virtually every state, At the federal level, impeachment of a federal judge is something that periodically does happen. And there are review structures within the court systems themselves. So judges are mindful of their own, the success of their own internal discipline. I think there's a a sensitivity as well in the state system, surely, to the fact that Decisions that are widely criticized or that may be, may run afoul of what would seem to be an appropriate balanced approach, or perhaps the case where a judge may in fact be seen as impartial and maybe even corrupt, can be the subject of a Mm. recall petition that has happened recently in California. Uh, Recall petitions are controversial. They don't always go forward for the right reasons, but sometimes they do. But nonetheless, that's an accountability uh, feature. And then, of course, in the case where a judge is elected or has to be uh, reconfirmed, that's another way to ensure that judges are uh, mindful of their role in making sure that their decisions are fair, even-handed, impartial, and certainly far from the kind of corrupt situation that we see in, unfortunately, other countries. Yep. I hope our listeners heard that clearly. Please go back and review it. I think what Elizabeth said was that credibility really flows from two important things, independence and impartiality. And that just is a foundation. So, but Elizabeth, let me ask you, Americans are also cynical. We're a cynical people. You know, we tend to think grand thoughts about our institutions, but I've heard many, many people say, well, you know, hire a lawyer who is a former prosecutor. He knows the court. He'll solve the problem and he can avoid the trial. You know, so there's kind of a cynicism that's underlying this. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I suppose our legal profession is large enough so that not everybody is as pure as Caesar's wife, if you will. But by and large, I think law schools do. I would say a very good job of inculcating in their students, ultimately graduates, that they have a special responsibility, that they are stewards of this system and that it it falls to them to be honorable in the way in which they bring forth their arguments, to be honest and not to distort facts and so on. The most recent case I think that might be of interest is that of the acting, as it turns out, prosecutor in New York, Mr. Berman, 
Now, he was actually a Republican appointee replacing Preet Bharara, who was an appointee right. of the Obama administration. Right. Well, as, as we know, he recently uh, got into a disagreement with Attorney General Barr. And what's interesting to me about what developed there was here we have a Republican appointee who nonetheless is not bending his activities either to Republican or Democratic biases, but is doing the right thing and finding the facts and applying the law. And that's what I've come to expect of the finest examples of our profession. It's not to say that there aren't people, and I certainly saw this as executive director of the state bar, there are lawyers who sometimes what shall we say, adopt practices that are questionable and beyond. But we have structures to deal with that as well. And certainly kind of a unique structure in California, we actually have a prosecutor's office that's independent, as well as a court, state court, that is set up to hear cases of those who challenge the legitimacy and the uh, integrity of lawyers who are members of the State Bar of California. You opened this question, Elizabeth, with your comments about the Attorney General. I mean, the Attorney General is a political officer. I mean, he's a the senior legal executive for the government, but he's appointed by the president. And there's a lot of questioning about that. Can you just describe the relationship between the Justice Department and the courts? Well, historically, let's go back to a democratic example. There have been occasions, as for example, when John Kennedy appointed his brother, Robert Kennedy, where people would say, you've not maintained the kind of distance and separation between enforcing law and the political processes that either in reality or by appearance is what we want. There was a strong response in the Watergate period. Edward Levy came in and put together some very thoughtful descriptions and really rules and regulations as to how the Justice Department ought to operate. And since that time, I think there's been a tremendous sense on both parties, that the Justice Department, even though the Attorney General is, of course, a political appointee, has an independent role, has an obligation and a duty to support the rule of law. That is to say, to fairly and even-handedly apply the laws as they have been uh, developed by Congress and are being implemented. And so, there's a a tremendous sense of pride. The U.S. Attorney's offices in particular are really wonderful institutions where we have career prosecutors, to be sure, headed by a political appointee. But those political appointees have, in the main, been people who have been schooled in the finest legal practices and honor the role of the Justice Department, as well as the U.S. Attorney's offices, of which there are over 90 uh, based uh, state to state. And of course, it should be said that in nominating either a federal judge who will serve in a particular jurisdiction or a U.S. Attorney, there is a process where that name, that nomination will go before the senators who are serving, and they will indicate in that jurisdiction, whether they approve or not. 
I should comment perhaps too that the American Bar Association, which has prided itself over the years on being, may I say, ecumenical, neither Republican nor Democratic in its bias, uh, has a process where they will review an appointee at the federal level and comment on whether that person's qualified or not. So I think there are a number of structures, a number of, of ways in which we try to ensure that those lawyers who move into these kinds of very important positions do have the qualifications and the background to suggest that they will be fair and even-handed. Looking again at the Supreme Court, and maybe calling out, well, I mentioned Justice Powell, but think about Justice Stevens, or for that matter, Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, any number of uh, examples, most recently Justice Gorsuch. These are not people who you can count on to vote in your way if you happen to be the president with a strong political view. They will exercise their own view, they will read the law carefully, and they will come to reasoned decisions. Now, again, they come to their positions with their own biases, perhaps. They may have a view that is stronger in terms of the role of the executive than perhaps the Congress. Then, you know, they're not always going to come to the same decision. But I think we can say that in the main, they have come to decisions that are principled and based on a careful reading of the facts and the law that are presented to them. It's so, so interesting what you've shared with us. We have a few minutes left, and Elizabeth, I, I'd like to shift to a major focus of your professional career, and that is national security law. You know, you were, of course, at the CIA. You were at the National Security Agency. I'd like to ask you about the FISA court. This is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was established to create a legal process over the way that the U.S. government conducts intelligence operations that might include American citizens. Can you spend a minute sharing with us what you think to be the weaknesses and the strengths of the FISA court? Well, you know, my answer is a simple one, John. I don't think the court is a problem. I think the court has performed its role admirably. That said, there have been, I think, notable missteps in the way in which certain matters have been presented to the court. But to those who look at the court and say, oh, let's reform the court, I would say, I think you may have hold of the wrong end of the stick or choose another metaphor. I think here, what we've seen in recent days is not that the court has erred, but that there have been structural, in some cases, problems in the way matters have been developed to present to the court. Now, I might add, it's important to keep in mind that while NSA uh, certainly has a role in presenting matters to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, so also does the FBI. And I think that not wanting to point a finger at a shall we say, a sister bureaucracy from my time in government. I think it's possibly the case that the Bureau has some structural issues that have not ensured quite the level of review Mm. and caution in the way in which 
presentations to the court have been developed. And that's, I think, where some attention is needed. And I think, frankly, the recent reviews of what has happened in some of the presentations to the court have come to that conclusion. So the the Inspector General's uh, review, if anyone has read that large document, might point in that direction. I guess the other thing I'd say early in my career Uh, active doing draft resistance. When I arrived at NSA, I assumed that I was going to be the answer, as it were, to the maiden's prayer, that no one would have been better prepared to protect the rights of American citizens. To my amazement, I found that the lawyers in that office were being more careful, more thoughtful than I would have been. And at first, I thought maybe this was just my reaction, but successive general counsels have said the same thing to me, that the office was careful, precise, and very thorough in the way in which it was presenting these matters. And so I just think that's a a point worthy of note, because this is not an office that gets a lot of public attention. But going back to your broader question, I don't think it's the FISA court that is our problem here. And I would hope that efforts to dismantle or change that court structure pause and look more deeply at what some of the recent reporting has told us. I completely agree with you, Elizabeth. I had some experience with the FISA court when I was in government. And, you know, sometimes it was maddening. They didn't agree with me, you know, but that's not the issue of the capability of the court. It's whether they rendered fair and honest judgment. But let me ask one little side question here about legitimacy. And it really springs from a conversation I had with you several years back You know, most courts establish their legitimacy and credibility by explaining to the public how they ruled on a condition. When they render their conclusions, their findings, they also explain how they came to that. But the FISA court doesn't do that. How much of a problem is that? Well, actually, the FISA court does do that. It has been releasing its opinions. Now, it's obvious that because they are handling such very sensitive information, they cannot be as fully forthcoming as other courts may be. But they have indeed issued opinions, and those opinions have been declassified. I can't say that every opinion that they've rendered has been declassified, but many have. And so I think from that, you can learn about how that court functions more than what people might have understood. That's really interesting. I mean, Elizabeth, this has been a fascinating conversation with you. I knew it would be. You've had such uh, remarkable experiences in life, and you've brought them to public service in ways that all of us have benefited. So let me just, you know, with my little insufficient summary, let me just say that, you know, the rule of law is so deeply baked in America that it is just a foundation of our day-to-day operations. It depends on institutions. We've created robust institutions, the judicial system. It depends on procedures. Those procedures are objective and fair and clear. And that it depends on a transcending consensus, political consensus, that this is good for America. It's been insightful. Do you have any concluding thoughts, Elizabeth, before we wrap up? Well, I think understanding how the courts function is an area deserving of attention. 
And one of the things I've been spending time on in recent years, recent months, more accurately, I suppose, is interacting with judges who are concerned that they've got to figure out how without being political or appearing to talk about their decisions or being influenced as they shouldn't be, how they nonetheless can make the court processes better understood. And that's something that I think that both law schools, but more importantly, members of the bar have a role in. And so there's been effort to see whether we can't do a better job in instructing or educating is a better word, the public on how courts do function. There have also been, and this is a state-by-state effort, some looking at judicial codes of conduct, which are very strict and do not allow judges to comment about their opinions, either as they are pending or after uh, they've rendered them because they want to avoid any kind of political appearance, which would then, in the construct of our Constitution, move courts into a political role, which is not a role that they have. There does, however, I think at this point in time, and particularly given the fall off of of understanding of civic education, need to be additional attention given to how do we inform the public about the way in which our courts must and do function. They still enjoy, within the three branches, the highest level of trust. And I must say that internationally, they are seen as a jewel, as they should be. But again, understanding their functioning so that those who might do mischief cannot undercut the terribly valuable importance and role of this particular part of our government structure, I think, is going to be increasingly important to us. And so this is a conversation, I would say, that's very valuable. You know, this has been a splendid conversation, Elizabeth. You've always been my mentor. I've learned so much from you. So I say thank you. You are a talented lawyer, an educator, a national leader, and a patriot. And thank you for all of those dimensions of your life. Coming from you, John, that's a real compliment for which I thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for doing this. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 